Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis awaiting you today, so grab your stool and get comfortable. But for the next uh, minute or so, Jim, uh, for those who are longtime listeners to the podcast, you know that Jim is a Jets fan, I am a Bears fan, and it seems like one of us is looking for a new head coach just about every year. This time it's the Bears' turn. A lot of excitement about uh, Ryan Poles being the new GM. That was announced a couple days ago. And then just this morning, Jim, we find out that uh, Matt Eberflus, the defensive coordinator for the Colts, whose name I couldn't pronounce until literally about two minutes ago because I looked it up. I assumed it was Eberflus. It's not. It's Eberflus. But uh, anyway, he's the guy in Chicago, and we'll find out over the next, uh, oh, probably two, three years if this was a good hire. they got a lot of work to do to get back to being a truly competitive team. But, uh, you know, it's like the first day of spring training. You know, everybody's got a shot. Greg, in a lot of these cases, the fans don't really know whether this is a good hire or not. You can, you know, you try to assess how somebody's done as a coordinator, but particularly if they haven't been a head coach before, we're all kind of guessing how that coach is going to fit with the culture, with the organization, with the players, the decisions the general manager is going to make, stuff like that. But I'll make two observations. The first is uh, my dad had season tickets to the Jets when I was growing up, and the first coach that I was watching was Joe Walton. Fans got very frustrated with him after 86, 85 and 86, they were good, and the Jets went into decline. And the fan base got really annoyed, and you started searing the chant, Joe must go, Joe must go. And uh, you had people, you know, fans showing up with paper bags over their heads and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think the lesson is have a coach with a complicated name <laughs> who does not lend itself to chance to get rid of him. So Eberflaus, that or Flus, is it Flaus or Flus? Yeah, Flus, Eberflaus. Very European, right? You know, yeah. really sounds like he should be a soccer coach. Um, <laughs> Eberflaus will be really hard to chant. And as a result of that, I think it's, you know, the fans will be stymied in their desire to see a change. Second thing is when you've got Justin Fields as your quarterback, honestly, the single most important roles in the organization are going to be your offensive coordinator and the quarterback's coach. So best of luck and best of success. I hope to see the Jets and Bears in a Super Bowl someday. But, um, yeah, you know, in the end, the defensive-minded coach with a, with a young quarterback tends to get a little tough. Just warning you ahead of time. <laughs> That's true. It's true. The joke going around Chicagoland on Twitter, of course, is that, hey, we just gutted the GM and the, and the head coach. We got rid of Ryan and Matt, and we replaced them with Ryan and Matt. So, uh, well, We'll find out how that turns out. But okay, on to the good yeah. <laughs> Get rid of, there's going to be some sort of like get rid of Matt chant that'll work better than Eberflus, you know. <laughs> yes. But hey, you Looking got. for a Blitzkrieg offense, you know, but anyway. <laughs> All right, let's talk about our good martini now. We've actually got some good economic news. We've talked a lot about the problems with uh, supply chains and inflation, and those those problems aren't going away, as we'll also talk about in this martini, at least in terms of inflation. But uh, according uh, to the federal government, the fourth quarter, our economy grew 6.9%. Real gross domestic product increased at an annual rate of 6.9% in the fourth quarter. Uh, That's uh, in following a 2.3% increase in the third quarter of last year, so a decent size jump. Uh, That figure is adjusted for inflation, so it actually is a 6.9% increase. Uh, But... As others have noticed, this could get a little more complicated now. 
because it's looking like the Fed is more and more open to increasing interest rates, which, you know, I mean, you got to pay the interest on a $30 trillion debt uh, is going to take up a bigger piece of the budget. But Jerome Powell says there's quite a bit of room to raise interest rates without threatening the labor market. So, Jim, hopefully this is the sign that, uh, you know, folks clearly shopped well uh, heading into Christmas. We'll see if that continues in the quarters to come. But right now with this economy, we'll take any good news we can get. Greg, look, you and I also say when there's, you know, the, the bad martini or bad news on our show is economic, that no matter who's president, no matter which party controls Congress, we'd rather report good news than bad news. And today's news, if you think about the circumstances, is really kind of phenomenal. Um, it's been almost standard for the last six months or so that when a new inflation number comes out or the monthly job numbers come out, Usually we can get a pretty good audio soundbite of the anchors responding and saying, oh, my God. Oh, oh, did you see that inflation? You, you can just kind of tell it's like somebody just reached onto the set and slapped every anchor at CNN. They just they just look shocked and horrified. This is just phenomenal, considering all the, the quote unquote headwinds, to use a phrase from the early Obama days, working against this this economy. Um the supply chain issues, you think about the labor shortage, you think about inflation, you think about the start of the Omicron wave and workers staying home because they're sick. Back on October 25th, I wrote, is the U.S. economy headed towards a recession? And that was not me being a schmuck. Um, this was me listening to a pretty darn smart guy, Kevin Hassett, who was the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Trump. And Hassett, as I said, I think probably talked about this on the podcast, Hassett is the most amiable, cheery guy. And he was basically saying, oh, yeah, the economy is really going into the toilet. Um, I characterized it as his viewpoint was darker than Rembrandt's night watch viewed through sunglasses at midnight during a power outage. Um, and he was expecting things to be bad. And you know, he said, you know, we, we had less than 3% growth last time. People are like, oh, OK, this is looking pretty bad. This is a great number for this quarter and very surprising, pleasant surprise. Um, hopefully it's a sign, but I don't think these, I, I think the, the other thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, the U.S. workers are being very productive. I don't know if they necessarily feel good about the state of the economy when we talk about inflation and gas prices and food prices and empty shelves in the stores and stuff like that. So I don't think this is going to change the overall political dynamic, but all things considered, you'd rather see the GDP going up than getting smaller. And, uh, that was, this is a really, really good number for the last three months. Absolutely right. But you got that uh, advanced warning from the Fed. So if you have savings and you're seeing very little interest right now, which has been the case for quite a long time, things will get a little bit better there. But if you want to take out a loan, you want to buy a house, and you've been thinking about that for a while, you might want to get on that sooner rather than later. Although real estate prices are also uh, pretty high right now, too. So uh, a lot of different factors to consider. But all things considered, I will definitely take a 6.9% increase in the GDP. And like we said, we'll see where... uh, first quarter and, and beyond goes here in 2022. But uh, always happy to talk about good economic news. And uh, if the economy has been uh, good to you and you've got a little extra uh, coin in your pocket, well, there's a few better places to spend it on quality products than at my pillow. The pillows are phenomenal. Uh, I refuse to sleep on anything else right now. When I have to go on vacation and I don't take it with me, uh, I can definitely tell the difference and not in a good way. Uh, then I love the Giza Dream Sheets. I love the towel. And I absolutely love the new My Slippers. Love walking around the house in those. Very, very comfortable. And right now, when you use our promo code Martini at checkout at mypillow.com, you can get 40% off those new My Slippers. And listeners, these are not just any slippers. The My Slippers spent two years in development 
to ensure the highest quality and comfort. The My Slippers were designed to be worn all day, indoors, outdoors, wherever you like. The slippers are available in moccasin or slip-on style. They're available in a variety of colors and sizes. And they're made with quality leather suede. And they have the exclusive three-tier cushioning system. The MyPillow patented fill, the impact gel, and the memory foam. For a limited time, MyPillow is offering 40% off the new My Slippers. Go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener's square. Do not forget that part. Enter the promo code MARTINI or call 800-874-0104. Now, while you're there, take advantage of the deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. But you can only save 40% on the new My Slippers with our promo code MARTINI. So use that code MARTINI. When you call 800-874-0104 or go to MyPillow.com. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And one of the things that we continue to see is, of course, very little progress when it comes to the situation with Russia and Ukraine. Obviously not uh, a laughing matter, but the Washington Post uh, clearly saying that there's little optimism in their headline of resolving the crisis uh, as the West tries to deter Russia from doing this. But uh, the Washington Post reporting uh, the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said uh, Putin has studied the proposals that have come from the United States and NATO and that his response will be swift raising the prospect of further dialogue, but uh, it's more than likely that uh, nobody's going to agree on much here. But meanwhile, uh, over in the Far East, Beijing is kind of popping the popcorn and just waiting to see how this plays out. Politico uh, on the China Watcher column today, essentially saying that they're waiting to see how the United States and the rest of the world responds to the Russia-Ukraine situation. And if they sense weakness, that's going to just embolden them a whole lot more when it comes to their ambitions on Taiwan. Now, we have talked before how China might just do more economic squeezing than overt military activity. They've got a lot of different options. Unfortunately, uh, the Biden administration has promised to protect Taiwan, but I'm not sure how much that is good for at this point, especially if uh, if they don't look strong when it comes to the Ukraine situation. So, uh, Jim, uh, like we said after Afghanistan, these were the two spots that we thought were going to flare up the most. And we've got one potentially on deck and, and another one waiting to see what happens. Yeah, now we sh- we will. I- I'll be among the first to concede that the president of the United States does not have absolute control over everything that happens in the whole wide world. But the purpose of a lot of our foreign policy and our national security approach towards the world is deterrence, right? You want to prevent the other, the bad guys from doing things and you want to communicate very clearly that, well, you, you know, if you can try to do that, but we're going to make that as painful and as expensive for you as possible. We're going to make you in the end say, this isn't, this was not worth it. We should not have done this. What was I thinking? And, and all that. And to, I will give a certain amount of credit that when the president is not completely undermining his own message in off-the-cuff comments in press conferences, the Biden administration has tried to meet with our, our allies and tried to emphasize very clearly, do not invade Ukraine, do not send troops, do not try to you know take another small piece of the Donbas region or something like that. Um, they tried to rally our allies, although Germany is kind of this giant uh, counterweight, you could say. I'll give credit to the administration for trying. But it doesn't really seem that they're getting the, the results they want. And it's really kind of an unnerving thought, because remember, it's not just the United States. It's a bunch of our NATO allies basically saying to a militarily powerful country, sure, you can invade that neighbor, but we're going to have all of these consequences. We're going to arm the Ukrainians. We're going to attempt to enact all of these sanctions. We're going to 
um, you know, try to economically, you know, diplomatically pressure you. We're going to uh, make it tough to travel. We're going to make it tough for the oligarchs to send their kids to Western schools. You know, all these different ways. We have all these ways to, you know, say, hey, if you do this, we will punish you in this way. That's the stick. Right? Doesn't seem to be doing any good on um, against Russia. Now, maybe it's because Vladimir Putin has decided this is his legacy. He wants to be remembered as Vladimir the Great in the Orthodox Church. He wants to be seen as the man who brought the Ukraine back into the Russian fold, right? Um, and maybe if he's if he's that, you know, almost a messianic fervor in his mind, then maybe there's no way to deter Vladimir Putin from doing this. But as you just laid out there, Greg, China is watching this, and China is saying, okay, the Western alliance couldn't really deter Russia from going into Ukraine. Nothing they could do was anything that, the, you know, Vladimir Putin and the top people in the Russian government couldn't withstand. It's probably very similar for us and Taiwan. What I've been recommending Ukraine is very similar to what has more or less kept the peace, and I'm making air quotes as I say that because there have been military overflights and various other saber rattling about between China and Taiwan over the past few, it's intensified the last few months, but it's really been going on for years and years. China is a much bigger country. China is a much more wealthy country. China has a much bigger military forces than Taiwan does. But the perspective of Taiwan, founded by Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists who lost the Chinese Civil War way back in the 1940s, I want to say, mm -hmm. World War II, right? Um, is that they're like, well, you could conquer us, but it would be a bloodbath. We would make, we would inflict such enormous losses on you that by the end of it, yeah, you would have defeated us, but it would be a Pyrrhic victory. We basically have the charred out husk of a bombshelled uh, island. And if any of us are still alive, we're still going to be taking shots at you as you try to occupy us. That's kind of the approach Ukraine has to take right now. It's got to be, look, our military is probably not going to beat you one-on-one, -on -one, although we are fighting a defensive war. You guys are on offense. Defenders have a little bit of a tactical advantage there. But yeah, you'll probably overrun us. But in the end, like you're going to end up costing you so much that you're going to say, why did I do this? This wasn't worthwhile. If we can't deter Putin on Ukraine, I don't think the outlook is good for deterring China and Taiwan. The question is, you know, up until now, the Chinese government has looked at Taiwan and said, we want it back. But, you know, military conquest would cost us too much in blood and treasure. I don't know if Xi Jinping sees it the same way anymore. I don't know if his thinking is changing on this. I don't know whether the Chinese, believing that they are ready to emerge as not just one of the world's two superpowers, but perhaps surpassing us. Their mentality may well be, it is time to bring Taiwan back into the fold. It is time to show the world we can dictate terms. So I, I hope it doesn't come to that. But I do believe that this, you know, Beijing is watching what's happening between Russia, China, I mean, Russia, Ukraine, and NATO very closely. And if Russia gets a piece of Ukraine, maybe large swaths of Ukraine through military conquest, I think that makes war over Taiwan much more likely. Obviously, major concerns in both situations. Uh, geographically, uh, along the line of uh, kind of a wall of our NATO allies there, a lot of reasons to be concerned about Ukraine in addition to, you know, freedom and, and the free people of Ukraine itself. Over in Taiwan, perhaps geopolitically even more significant, Jim, not only uh, trying to protect the free people there, but economically, I would argue, obviously, that Taiwan is a more significant trading partner. And it was just earlier this week that the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, was talking about how our semiconductor situation is in big trouble. And we got to figure out uh, different ways uh, to build the supply back up to meet the demand. And I believe Taiwan is by far our greatest source of semiconductors. And so it's not just, obviously, the business aspect that we're trying to protect there. But there's a lot of ramifications if China gets its claws into Taiwan. You know, Greg, I saw this comment on Twitter earlier. And my apologies for not remembering who wrote it, but it was such a good line. 
Have you noticed the Democrats believe in diversity everywhere except in the supply chain? <laughs> yes. They also believe in choice only within one area and not in other cases like healthcare and education and stuff. So, yeah, no, double standards all over the board. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And yesterday we uh, got the news that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer is planning to step down at the end of this term, which means the very end of June, possibly very early July. But uh, uh, he apparently was not very happy that the news got leaked yesterday, at least according to Shannon Bream of Fox News. He had uh, told the White House uh, a number of days ago that that this was in the offing. I think pretty much right as we're recording this, he's at a joint appearance at the White House. So uh, it's going to be official at that point, And then Biden will uh, come up with a nominee. He, of course, has uh, promised long ago to appoint a a black woman to the court, uh, going uh, again, as he did with much of his cabinet, focusing on diversity. Uh, he, of course, could find an excellent, perhaps the very best Supreme Court justice who happens to be a black female. But uh, getting the very best should be uh, consideration number one, which means he should not choose Kamala Harris. Uh, this whole idea has been raised a number of times. Uh, as a one way to uh, politically move her along because she does him no good on a ticket or an administration, as we've seen over the past year. It should also be a reliable uh, voice on the Supreme Court. But from what we're hearing, uh, the White House, although Jen Psaki said there was she was not going to comment at all on the process, there are apparently other sources uh, speaking out suggesting that uh, Harris is not likely to be in the mix. So, uh, Jim, what do you make of the media uh, kind of licking its chops at the idea of Kamala Harris, uh, even the idea of it, of her moving over to the Supreme Court? Well, before I dive into that, Greg, uh, on the notion that Breyer's retirement was leaked or, or you know, came out prematurely, um, I feel bad for the justice. He should be able to announce his retirement on his own terms. But honestly, if you're a Supreme Court justice and you say to somebody, yeah, I think I'm going to retire at the end of this term, you got to expect that to leak at some point. You, you you might be able to tell your spouse, your immediate family, and maybe a close friend. But if you tell anybody else in Washington, your clerks, your other justices, Supreme Court staff, you know, that's going to leak. And so I, I don't know when he officially decided. I don't know who he told. I don't know who Pete Williams' source was. But something like that, it's going to come out like within 24 hours. You just, it's just too big. It's just too consequential. Um, so I, I, you know, I feel bad for Justice Breyer, but uh, you really shouldn't be all that surprised. What's that saying? If you want a friend in Washington, buy a dog. <laughs> if you want to keep a, uh, uh, a secret in Washington, buy a dog, and then check your dog for NSA listening devices. Um, beyond that, you know, regarding Kamala Harris, so you look, you, you hear this rumor, you're like, oh come on, he's never going to do that. That's ridiculous. And then after a second, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> That could work. <laughs> that could do Biden a lot of good. And look, it does not appear he's going to actually do this. But you think about it. Of course, she's you know she's qualified enough. Um, she's been Attorney General of of California. She's been a prosecutor. She knows the law. I, you know the administration. This would be addition. This would be addition by subtraction, so to speak. This would be enhancing the administration by giving Biden a potential do over for his vice president. He could pick someone who would not be running a good 10 points behind him in approval rating in the polls. He could pick someone who would probably be a much more effective coordinator. Be harder to do one who pick someone who's less effective. Right? Um, he could pick someone who could help him in a swing state. He could pick someone who would be uh, reassuring if, God forbid, something ever happened to Joe Biden. Like You, you look at that, and all of a sudden you're like, wow. There'd be, and, and, you know, she would vote the right way on every case for the rest of her life, at least from the perspective of Democrats. You know, would she get confirmed by the Senate? I 
think so. Uh, the, the one of the more interesting wrinkles of this is if it came down to a 50-50 split, would Kamala Harris be able to uh, uh, break the tie on her own nomination? Even if it's legal and constitutional, it'd be a really kind of embarrassing, awkward, odd situation. Uh, and I think it was Lawrence Tribe who made the argument back during the uh, Trump administration that Vice President Pence would not be able to break a tie on a Supreme Court nomination. It'd be tough to, ta- to hash out there. But you look at that and you're like, well, you know, yeah, yeah, Biden would, would you know, he'd get rid of the Kamala Harris problem and then he'd find himself with somebody else who could be an actual political asset and the whole country could be reassured that this replacement vice president would kind of be this reassuring figure and be kind of hitting the reset button and all kinds of good things come out of it. It's not going to happen. But also, doesn't it say something that here we are in January 2022, roughly one year into this presidency, and everyone is thinking, God, wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of the vice president? <laughs> I don't think people were thinking that way in in Bush and Quail. Like, there's, I, I'm trying to imagine. This is a really odd situation for the Biden administration to find itself in. That the you know what everyone says, the first and most important decision that Joe Biden will make as a Democratic nominee, and he botched it. He made a terrible choice when you think about it. And she can't do anything that that helps him out in any significant way. She doesn't have relationships on Capitol Hill. She's not effective on uh, on in public communications. Obviously, what's what she said? You know the you know the time to do it. We it's time for us to do what we have been doing, and that time is now. You know she's giving this this hallmark card babble. Um, she's got no experience in foreign policy, national security, that kind of stuff. I mean, she's just this walking you know case of liabilities, and very understandable. Biden would want to have a reset button on this. But he can't, so he's stuck with her. Good luck, Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah, a lot of different thoughts here. First of all, even though it would be awkward, I don't have any idea why she couldn't break the tiebreaker, even if it was on her. I mean, the job of the vice president when they're presiding, if necessary, is to break the tie. Dan Quayle was in the chair when Clarence Thomas's nomination was up and uh, perfectly ready to go. Mike Pence, the same. I mean, the vice president has that power. I think Lawrence Tribe... I give him props for being consistent, as he said. He would he would still hold the same position, even though he wouldn't like it in this in this particular case with the Democrats making the nomination. But I mean, if the vice president has the power, the vice president has the power. Although I think he won't do it, like you said. But if he did do it, it would also be a major political loser because, as as you said, she's even less popular than he is. So there's no jump in in appointing some fresh, interesting new face to the Supreme Court that most people haven't heard of before. He'd be appointing someone who most of America doesn't like already. And so there'd be no political bump for Democrats out of that, I don't think. Uh, Interesting tweet yesterday from Bill Kristol, who used to pretend to be a conservative, saying, you know, there's never been a vice president appointed to the Supreme Court, but... A former vice presidential nominee, Earl Warren, was uh, was nominated to the court and uh, and was one of the most significant justices ever. And I'm thinking, yeah, uh, for someone who claims to be a conservative, I'm not sure Earl Warren's the guy you want to throw out there as the as the uh... Earl Warren. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> and finally, Jim, 1994. It turns out was a while ago. That's when Stephen Breyer was uh, nominated by Bill Clinton to the Supreme Court. He is now the second longest tenured justice. Only Clarence Thomas has been there longer. Uh, And if you want to know how long it's been since Stephen Breyer, I love doing this, uh, was nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, between the time he was nominated by Clinton and the time he was confirmed in 1994, O.J. Simpson happened in California, went from beloved football star to accused murderer. Uh, It was also the summer right before the Republican Revolution, before Newt Gingrich became Speaker. 
And the top movies that summer were The Lion King and Forrest Gump, although we all know the best movie of 1994 was probably The Shawshank Redemption. And that's only because there were no Die Hard movies. Uh, Die Hard 3 <laughs> would come out the next summer. <laughs> you know, Greg, if I remember correctly, the la- that also I believe that year was the last time the Cincinnati Bengals won a playoff game before this year. <laughs> the reason I know that, and the reason I thought of that, is because someone had observed the last time the Bengals won a playoff game, I believe the coach was Sam Weish, the post-game interview was conducted by O.J. Simpson. O.J. Simpson. Yes. <laughs> Which, you know, you know, wow. That was a, back when O.J. Simpson was not controversial, that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess... If we're doing a we wouldn't do we won't do a champagne toast to Briar. We'll no. give him the cheap stuff. But uh, no, I haven't agreed with anything. But good, I don't, say, I don't quite want to say good riddance. He's always been. He's occasionally made intermittent efforts to work towards comity. He spoke out against uh, uh, packing the court and things like that. So he's he's got some some nicer qualities. But uh, yeah, I, I think this is going to as I read, laid out in today's morning jolt. This is going to be a really normal political controversy in Washington compared to like empty shelves or Russia's invading Ukraine or everybody's out sick because they all have the Omicron virus and stuff like that. Like a good old fashioned nomination fight. That's like, that feels like a warm spring day right now. That's really familiar. We've been through this sort of thing before. We know how to handle this kind of stuff. Well, we'll see who he picks. Uh, as far as Breyer goes, yeah, I would argue that he has good respect for the institution. We certainly disagreed with him on most cases. Sometimes he would uh, show up on the right side, and I'm quite confident whoever Biden picks will be worse than him. So, um, <laughs> Low bar to clear, but yes. <laughs> we will see. Anyway, on that note, Jim, have a great day. We'll do it again tomorrow. We'll see you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Those are a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Thursday and join us again on Friday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit DanaRadio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.